This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akitanol, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveler, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer to peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. Often, the online world gets a dirty laundry pile of bad press when tragedies like cyberbullying and a spike in mental illness come into account. But our next guest would kindly disagree. Viewing the internet is the largest opportunity to become part of any community. I'm so excited to welcome Jeremy Hindle to the show today. He's the co-founder of Head Start AI and a Forbes 30 Under 30 listee. After battling numerous bouts of cancer in his childhood, Jeremy found solace in computer gaming and the online world. Faced with chronic isolation, he found himself fascinated by the way he could create virtual worlds and be a part of online communities across the globe. Jeremy's passion for computers and, later on, frustration with the job application process ultimately led him to create Headstart AI, a service that uses innovative algorithms and user profiling to identify the best candidates for a job. I'm thrilled to be talking to Jeremy today about the power of online communities, how we can better understand ourselves and how his business is helping him make a bigger impact. For those of you who haven't yet, make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these amazing Forbes 30 Under 30 listees. Okay, without further ado, here is my conversation with the brilliant Jeremy Hindle. Jeremy, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you. Yeah, it's really, it's really exciting. Um, I've listened to a bunch of your uh, shows before and um, yeah, I just really want to want to share and see if I can be helpful. Love it. I know you will be. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm keen, I'm keen to get into it today. So look, you and I recently connected on LinkedIn. And when I looked into you and all the awesome work you're doing in the AI space, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you making the time. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. So I'll start off by saying, yeah, it's machine learning. Let's not talk about that. Let, 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 we've all taken the blue pill. Is that is that the phrase that you're supposed to use? Like, AI is a very broad spectrum of things, but let's be super honest, 99% of people who say AI, what they really mean is machine learning. Mm. There are very, very few people in the world who work at like three or four organizations who mm. are actually advancing a field in what I would truly define as AI. But um, yeah, obviously we're using very advanced techniques, which we 
build on the shoulders of giants uh, in order to try and apply it to uh, socially good things. Mm. Love that. And you most definitely are. So look, I want to dive more deeper into your work. But before we do, I want to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing. And that is, where did you grow up? And how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? Well, uh, <laughs> I'll try and give the short answer. <laughs> um, I've actually lived in a lot of different countries. Um, I, I do have a pretty privileged background. I, when I look at my um, childhood, not as privileged as a lot of my peers, but I still see myself as very lucky. Um, I've lived in London uh, primarily, um, uh, but I've also grown up uh, in South Africa, where my uh, mother's side has a, has a farm. Uh, in the middle of nowhere, in the air, about a few hours' drive inland from uh, Durban, um, which I spent every sort of period of free time in my youth uh, there on holiday growing up. Uh, and you don't really have a choice when you're a child when it's holiday. You just go where your parents tell you, right? <laughs> <laughs> South Africa's a pretty good place yeah. to go. <laughs> um, and I'd just get, like, dumped on the plane back to the UK for school on my own at five years old, <laughs> coming back, which was pretty fun. Uh, I, I love that kind of stuff. Um, and then uh, we moved around a lot. So, um, as I said, I was very lucky growing up. But uh, my, my parents sacrificed a lot to give me the privileges that I've got. And so we had to move a lot. Um, we, I moved, lived in Northampton for a bit, Bedfordshire for a bit, and twice in Bedfordshire, actually. We moved around a lot, and then eventually all the way back to London. And by that point, I was out of the, out of the home, but both um, willingly and unwillingly. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, it was one of those scenarios, but mm. uh, all over the place. Uh, and I've, I've traveled a lot uh, growing up, um, but I'd say London's home. Mm. Yeah. What do you think traveling to different places, having different places you call home, taught you about yourself and the world around you at that age? Um, it's actually really weird. And I, 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 I would say that by being in a lot of different places around the world, you get exposed to a lot of different people. Um, but uh, once again, you've still got a sort of immediacy bias. So fundamentally, in all of those places, I still met a certain type of person, right? So even if you travel between different countries and you go to international schools, you're still hanging out with the kids or the people who go to international schools um, and, and, and stuff like that. Um, it's actually really weird, but my most privileged opportunity that my parents gave me was that I went to Eton and actually one of the most culturally diverse and societally and class diverse places I've ever been is actually very weirdly that school the scholarships which they offer and people don't really appreciate um, is is astronomical they don't offer any non-academic scholarships so all scholarships are academic and um, they also even uh, sponsor people's universities in certain cases as well so uh, and it's all based on excellence and it doesn't have to be excellence in you know traditional subjects it can be like you're an amazing musician or like you could be like an incredibly talented mathematician but useless at everything else you could still you can still fulfill that so it's very weird I'd say that the traveling it's like you see a lot of different parts of the world but actually really strangely um, I'd say that one of the most diverse groups of people was at school mm. even though people look at that school generally and go man it's all one type of person that's because those are the types of people you see on well our brand new prime minister for example um, and so people get this idea that it's a one type of place but I, I, I've thought about this a lot um, and uh, the second place uh, which isn't a real physical place uh, it actually probably had an even bigger impact was online computer gaming so actually, we'll, I'm sure we'll get on it, so I won't talk about it for a long time, but the first ever thing I did, it wasn't actually a company, it should have been, but it could have been. I ran one of the largest uh, Minecraft communities in the world. 
um, while I was, at U- I was doing my neuroscience degree at university called Let's Play Minecraft. And um, it had 36,000 weekly active users. Um, I didn't really know what I, I was just paying for it all myself through like money that I had from doing like summer jobs and stuff. Um, I, and, and also the community just chipped in and ended up paying for it all themselves just through donations. And we had voice channels with, uh, we had to have multiple eventually, but you could have up to 300 people in one room chatting at a time. And we had people from um, truck drivers in like Texas, the US, uh, to fighter jet pilots in the US military, to um, archeologists, to uh, nuclear physicists, all the way down to um, dustbin lorry drivers, uh, young girls living in Saudi Arabia, and um, redneck children. And so you would see this really interesting dichotomy in that I created this world which was very strict. It was a bit cult-like. I definitely wouldn't be able to do what I did then now (laughs) because I know too much. (laughs) Um, But um, you had scenarios where you had um, sort of nine-year-old American children who were homeschooled chatting with uh, young... I always think of this one story because it was one of the moments when I kind of realized, wow, this is... This is actually pretty special. This is building cultural awareness across the globe in a safe way. And people are, you know, learning about different cultures without feeling like they're having their own personal space invaded upon. So they're much more open to learn. And um, this girl was saying that she was feeling hungry. And this, you'd, you'd describe him as a spoiled brat. <laughs> but like, funny, he's like, yeah, just tell your mom to like make you a sandwich. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the girl went, well, yeah, I could, but there's no food in the house right now. So we'd have to go out and buy some. Not poor, but like yeah. it's, it's not about yeah. that I don't have food. Yeah. It's more about there's no food in the house. Mm. And I don't know whether you're aware, but in Saudi Arabia, women can't drive. And um, obviously the kid didn't know this. Every single person who was above like the age of sort of 24 with sort of a little bit of cultural awareness immediately was like listening on the channel like oh god what's going to happen here but we had a it was a really safe environment so nobody Mm -hmm. jumped in and cut the conversation off or anything like that and these two had been playing for hours they've been playing the game together so they were already friends Mm. if you kind of know what i mean Mm. and um she went oh well uh the girl was about i'd say 16 15 you don't i didn't know Mm. and she was like um yeah yeah no um here it's here it's a bit different um women, women aren't allowed to drive and this kid just goes that's so dumb like why why would that be and she goes and the thing is is this is the this is the point in time where you if you haven't got this kind of like weird distancing from the problem you kind of become more offended by it mm. and you become defensive but in this case the girl was kind of just like because she had had a great time and she was hanging out and it was a safe place she was just like well it's not great but it's kind of how it is here you know and it, it's culturally different and it's not all bad but it's culturally different and the kid goes well i think it's stupid and but that but the thing is what 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 was special to me about that is that kid who would never ever ever have been exposed to something like a homeschooled kid in America would have basically now if he ever comes across a person who's come from Saudi Arabia he has a he's so much more informed about how it's different and how those people are how to interact how to be respectful and like I have this um, theory around. Um, I don't believe that humans are naturally peaceful. We're just not. Like fundamentally, when there's a lack of resource, there's a certain human element to it. But what I do believe is um, increasing levels of tolerance between groups. An increasing level of tolerance is fundamentally an education issue. Mm-hmm. And, a, and, and, and for people to be educated, you have to be incredibly open-minded. Um, both as the sort of person who may be more educated and the person who's least educated. Because the person who's more educated will make assumptions and the person who's least educated won't have the comprehension. 
And so even though you're from these two different backgrounds, unless you're in a safe space, um, you, you, you don't learn. And so uh, I, I, that was at the very beginning, and that's why I eventually started my computer games company, which was my first proper company, which I wasn't an employee yet. Uh, well, I was, but I was running it. <laughs> you know, financial that stuff. But, um, the, but the um, was the idea that I actually think that all of the conversations around online communities and online gaming are almost always negative. They're always about all the negative aspects of all these things. But the communities which I built and the things which I saw I actually see it as one of the world's biggest opportunities to improve intercultural tolerance. Because you can put people in a world or a place or a game where you can interact with somebody in a completely safe way because they're not, it's not your place, it's another place. So it's not like you have a, a religious group moving into another area, which we obviously have in London. We have a lot of rifts in the UK right now, which is very sad, but it's also very understandable and quantifiable. No one talks about it like that, but it is. Is is that if you've got a Christian group of people um, who uh, have been very, you know, they go to church on Sundays, they believe in whatever they believe. I'm agnostic, by the way. But <laughs> um, and, and then you've got a, a, a large group of Muslims who are immigrating, both who are practicing and non-practicing. Mm. If a mosque then gets built in that person's community, it's culturally different. It looks different. It feels different. They have different ways of life. They have different holidays. And the thing is, is that's not a, I'm learning about this culture and therefore I can absorb it at a pace which I'm okay with absorbing. It's a, you're going to have to accept this now and I don't believe human beings are very good at that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so that's how I think about um, online spaces. I, I, I actually don't think about them as scary places where people are always exposed to negative things. Mm -hmm. I actually think that people shouldn't talk about um, stop. I think they should talk about stopping lots of online negativity mm -hmm. and all the issues associated with social media and like influencers and uh, false representation of self, which causes so many mental illnesses and mm -hmm. issues with youth particularly particularly i imagine people who listen to your podcast mm -hmm. um and um i i think that really the conversation should be far more around yes these are the negative experiences but how can we turn those into positive experiences rather than regulating and stopping the negative mm -hmm. experience because i know for a fact because i've i i receive messages from kids who've been the first time they've ever gone to college and they've sent me letters and they work in very senior positions now in places. And the first time they've ever gone in their family, their parents are not educated, they're farmers or they're whatever in the middle of nowhere. And I've, said, I've had letters, like handwritten letters from them saying, I never would have gone to college. I never would have even thought this job existed if it wasn't for me playing on your Minecraft server because they met somebody who was doing that job, playing the same game. Um, Minecraft was actually true. was a truly special thing. Um, it still is very special. I think there's a huge opportunity. I think the biggest opportunities were squandered by Marcus Person, the founder, because he couldn't mentally handle the pressure. Um, it's not for me to talk about that, but it, it, it was, a, I think at one point he had the same level of incident influence on Twitter as Barack Obama, mm -hmm. just to put it into context. I, it's crazy, right? <laughs> <laughs> As in like the measurement, the clout, you know, clout score back mm -hmm. when clout was like the measurement he, he had, like uh, Barack Obama had like a 98 score and Marcus Person had like a 97.9 score. And it was like, just because of the number of people who, and the level of engagement that he had with, uh, with, with the people who followed him. And that's why he uh, emotionally couldn't handle it because mm -hmm. he would make a flippant comment and he, he, he wasn't a culturally super aware mm. person of the world. And, but he does genuinely care about people. Mm. But the problem is, is he would make mistakes 
because you and, and, he, and he doesn't want to coach he wants to be transparent and then he, he just got burnt so many times that he couldn't handle it anymore you know and then that's why the whole thing happened mm. but um it's it's it it, it so when you say like sorry going all the way back to the original question which is like what did you learn from living in lots of places I learned about differences in people but it's very weird that I feel like the internet has given a platform to everyone who's connected these days Mm -hmm. to not only see all the negative stuff which is what we always hear about but actually it's it's the largest opportunity ever to become part of any community you want to in the world. And so when people say, oh, you don't know, like, how do you know about your cultural differences? I've learned so much more from people who I've never met in real life. I've shared more with people who I've never met in real life and I trust them more than people I've met in real life. Um, I literally have a friend, I won't mention who he is. Mm. He lives in Sweden and he, his job is to bend metal in a factory which supplies shelving to Amazon warehouses. That's literally his job, that's wow. all he does. And he is one of the most intelligent people I get to speak to. And he is stuck there because of his level of opportunity and certain other issues that he has with himself. Mm. Um, And I trust him more than pretty much everyone I know in my real life. And I've never met him in person. And um, I play games with him. Literally, sometimes if I have a bad day at work, which happens to everyone, or Mm. you have a good day sometimes, I'll literally just call him up, I'll say, hey mate, um, I wanna play some games. Uh, I wanna play something relaxing. Let's play, and he'll be like, "Sure, let's play." And we just play, and we'll we'll just chat about whatever we want while we're playing. It's mm. uh, it's escapism, but at the same time, you build a relationship. And people forget that people think games are just about escaping or like being angry, but actually, it's about the person you're doing it with and talking with, and that's mm. it. It's, it's so so. I've definitely got more of the moving around the world thing from the online world. It's one of the huge benefits of internet mm. wow what a monologue <laughs> this isn't my bad i absolutely love this my, my mind is so blown i guess you could say because of the perspective you brought to the table i think so many of us and thank you for that i think so many of us we just think of the on there's so much negativity around the online space you know, social media as you touched on the negative connotations it has to do with you know the influence it has on mental health and all of that kind of stuff yeah, physical image and exactly exactly and we could talk about that for days but i think that it's so refreshing to hear a perspective around well i'm actually i've never felt closer to someone who i've met online yeah. and who i've had the ability to interact with in whatever form it was for you it was mm. for you it's games and for your community it was games and i just think that's so special i think the question i've i'm going to put to you is why do you think so many of us have the tendency to view the internet to view social media to view potentially the games gaming world as negative like why why is there so much stigma around this um it's a big Big question question. but um i think it's why there's a lot of stigma around particular types of any media content Mm -hmm. um it's to do with uh well it's very closely tied i believe to some of the biggest issues with all of our news these days in that um that there's a reason why podcasts like this in my opinion are growing which is outside of um normal publicity and that is is that publicity is in such a difficult situation so we look at the bbc for example and i don't know their statistics i don't know their numbers but when you look at online stuff it's all about ad revenue um and fundamentally that means it really it's not about 
adverts. So people say, oh, if you're not an ad-driven company, then it means you can have authentic news content. But that's not really true because ad revenue is driven by something called views <laughs> and clicks. And fundamentally, no matter what media content you're producing, um, views and clicks are really what drive its success. And that's true for the BBC too, because the BBC has to apply for its budget, which means the BBC is in this very awkward situation where um, before, its creation was fundamentally to influence the world with British culture. We were all very aware of what the world broadcast was really for. It's about impl- it, it, it pushing British values globally. That's what it is. And you can say that's positive or negative, depending whatever background you're from. I personally think it's relatively positive. Um, uh, but that budget got cut significantly four or five years ago. Um, and that was because the World Service was costing money and the BBC was having a diminishing viewership or listening and so the budget got reallocated and the way that they'll be applying for that budget the number one way i imagine will be engagement Mm. and the thing is is that people engage with sensationalism shock people want to hear about you know um the kid that lost his like he he was a really bad mental state already but he happened to play games and therefore he copied something which he saw in a game and performed atrocious things but fundamentally, like the issues are more to do with the fact that why that kid was playing that game in the first place and what it was giving him that he had been put into by society, by m- mental illness or, or by just parenting or, or his schooling or any other issues that they might have had. And so if you want to get those views, you're going you're gonna to write the article, which is like that. And also, I just think that... Um, the people who truly understand the gaming industry aren't the people who report on it. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the people who make the games because that's what they care about. And people who make games don't write about other games companies. That's not how it works. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, there's a massive indus- issues in that, in that industry. I mean, there's a whole thing about how journalists who actually report on games at large establishments don't play games enough and they complain that games are too hard and things. And, mm-hmm. and then real gamers complain basically saying like, you should just get good. If you can't play the game, you can't play it far enough because it's difficult, then you can't review it. Mm. Do you see what I mean? Mm. But th- that, that's a whole issue, a separate mm. issue. But um, I'd say that's probably why. I mm. think it's just to do with people don't talk about the positive stories. Maybe there are less of them. It's, ha- I, I, it's hard for me to tell. But um, I, that doesn't mean I don't think that the um, potential for incredible social good is, is not there in those spaces. Mm. I, haven't, I haven't been able to try to do it again like I did with my computer games company um, I don't think the market is financially in the right position to try that mm. but I, I, I undoubtedly want to try mm. I love that how did you yourself get into games you, know, you talked about this idea of you know it's the fundamental issue why that child actually came into games like, what was your story around that god this is going to be emotional <laughs> we're ready this is what we're about <laughs> here you go guys this is where this is where it gets tough yeah. um, <laughs> um well uh i've actually had cancer twice yeah so i've had hodgkin's lymphoma had it once when i was five um and once when i was nine uh first time i had radiotherapy um, and chemotherapy, and I also had operations to have it removed, and it was in my neck. When I was nine, I had it all through my um, sort of abdomen and stuff like that. Full recovery now, totally mm-hmm. fine. You know, I have to be careful about certain things. Won't touch a cigarette, don't smoke, <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, uh, I think that uh, during particular the time when I was nine, I obviously had to spend a lot of time in hospital. Um, I, I sat a year out at school. I didn't like stay on that, I stayed in my year, which was 
intellectually tough and a whole nother mm-hmm. thing. But um, I've always performed well and I've luckily been um, gifted with slight insanity. So I can work pretty hard <laughs> and I can learn things pretty quickly. And then in return, I'm a bit weird. Um, <laughs> um, but um, I think that uh, for me, uh, at least when I was, it's, it's so weird. I had this conversation, oh my God. Like, um, so first off, it was escapism, right? Like if, it, I loved reading. I read a lot as well when I was in hospital and stuff, but I really loved games. I loved computer games because I could, it felt so much more interactive. It felt like you were controlling the character. And I wrote actually one of the first jobs I wanted, I wanted to work at a games company. So I wrote this paper on character association theory, which is not a real thing, but I called it that. And there are lots of the same thing, mm-hmm. um, which is, um, you project just like you project on characters in, in TV series. That's why you have like the different tropes so that everyone has somebody who they can go like, oh, that's just like me. And then they like the character and then they watch. <laughs> you know, all that stuff which Netflix is incredibly good at mm-hmm. and has all the data on. <laughs> um, so, you know, um, it, it, it's that. And, and in games, that's, I actually think that games are once again even better because you actually control the character. So you pick your character, you choose, and also you make decisions in the world, which you can then change the world based on what that individual in the real world might want it to be. So you can actually create an even more engaging thing. And games back then were pretty like basic, but there were games like Final Fantasy VII, which is like a huge open world uh, strife with war. Um, and and, and it's, a, it's a game which at the age when I was playing it was far too complex for my level of intellect. Mm. Um, and therefore I never completed it. <laughs> and then I went back and played it again, like seven years later. I'm like, wow, this looks like crap. <laughs> but you know, it's a great story. No one who loves that game, give me a hard time, please. <laughs> please. Um, it's being remade. We'll hope the remake will do it justice. Um, so, um, but uh, it was escapism and people talk about their heroes. And actually, Alexis Ohanian was talking about their heroes recently. He was like, oh, it sounds really cheesy, but it's my dad. Mm. And it's like, okay, great. And he goes, and he, and he pauses, and I know what he was going to say, and he didn't say, but I'll say it. And that is, is that unfortunately, pretty much everyone who you look at as a hero when you're young turns out to not be as good as you think they are. And everyone has skeletons in their closet. Everyone's done something. I'm not going to swear. Bad. Uh, <laughs> you can swear. It's okay. Uh, well, I, don't, I, I didn't know. I didn't actually yeah. check. I didn't check the. I didn't check the age rating. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be on like a like somebody's playing at a school somewhere yeah. in Australia. It's like, <gasps> I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, it, 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 the really nice thing about uh, characters in um, fictional senses is is that their flaws are controllable. And their faults are also controllable. And they live in a world which is fictional, which means you can, you can take liberties with what would actually happen. Like bribery doesn't exist. It, uh, like, you know, personal self- selfishness is less of an issue. So you basically can look at somebody whose values are fictional as a younger person, particularly when you don't know as much about the world. And you can look at them and be, I want to be like that person. And that person can have standards which are way above the expectations that any human being can have right in the real world except extremely exceptional people and in all honesty i don't think any exist but anyway um quite at that at, at that a fictional tier and so in a weird way it's kind of like games created this virtual world where i could project on people that i wanted to aspire to be like and you pick the best aspects of characters that you value and you think that they act in a way which you care about and so instead of like looking at like 
an Elon Musk, who recently has obviously been contentious and things like that, who loads of people have admired, and now they feel like, oh, can I admire this guy because he's been irresponsible recently and whatever, whatever he's doing, whether it's purposeful or not. But, you know, it's like, oh, then they feel like their hero's gone. Whereas if you've got that fictional character who will never do that, and they're, they're like, man, I should do it like that fictional character should, particularly when you're young, when it's okay to live in those fantasy lands, you know, and, and, and to be whisked away on those journeys where you can just learn and, and explore the values which you actually like emotionally like resonate with before you kind of get semi-corrupted by the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was a lot of it was that for me. I loved the idea of playing, play, going to a, whether you could be a book, it could be anything, is escaping the real world and going to a place where a person can fulfill the ethical goals of their life without having like every single thing in the world pulling you away from it. Because no matter how good you want to be and the impact you want to have, no matter how good I want to be, like every single business, every single individual has to make decisions at the end of the day which are selfish. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's not necessarily selfish for me as an individual, but selfish for my shareholders, selfish for my employees, you know? Like, I, I'm closer to my employees than the average person who will help her get a job. Mm-hmm. I want to help people have more opportunity in the world, right, with, with Head Start, this is. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I've seen my employees working, like, blood, sweat, and tears on the weekend, and I'm like, man, I want to I give these guys, like, stuff too. But, but then, and then that's like, oh, but then if I... If the company does this, we take money from here so we can give people more. You have to think, oh, what does that mean? We have to like not do this now. We have to have an emphasis on sales rather than like our algorithmic accuracy and things like that. And, and, and that's the problem with the real world. So games, fictional, people can be better and worse. It also gives you the opportunity to make really bad things about and then and then sort of like dislike them a lot. So it's it, it, it's escapism mm-hmm. and that escapism allows for idealism in like a positive way so fascinating i just think this conversation is absolutely fascinating i so appreciate you sharing honestly i'm just really enjoying it because it's like one of my favorite topics i love talking about that stuff i i just i love computer games i love online communities i will sing the praises of all my online friends like forever and ever and ever um and i i i really wish more people would talk about this because lots of people feel this way they just don't talk about it i love it and i mean this is what we're here to do, right? It's to shine the light on the things that actually matter, the, the connection side, the, the good sides of what we're, you know, what we're into and also obviously the downfalls as well. Yeah. I find this fascinating. Okay. So, wow. So after that period there of having to deal with, you know, cancer, which I so appreciate you sharing. Way harder on my parents than me. Yeah. Oh, I can only imagine, you know, and then heading into university and knowing that, you know, you loved, you had such a strong love for games and that helped you. Oh, and my parents didn't let me play them, which made me want to do it even more. Of course. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Only natural. Only natural. So, you know, you know, you went on to study neuroscience and psychology. Like, wh- wh- talk to us a little bit about how you led into that, how gaming and your passion for that led you to study what you what you did. Yeah, so I, 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 was, I was a really weird 9 to 12-year-old. So after I was ill, um, I'm very, I guess, fortunate, I suppose, to bank with a very exclusive bank. And one of the things they do is they interview you when you're, like, 13 and go, what do you want to be when you're older? To decide whether, you know, they can suck as much money out of you as possible by some point, right? Like, and, uh, and you know, when you're younger, just like, oh, this is a nice building. Why not just talk to them? <laughs> and uh, they go, what do you want to be? And I was like, well, um, I had it. This, this is going to say a lot about my exposure to the world. <laughs> and this guy went, yeah, I want to run a, a neurodegenerative disorders research facility. And 
I always very aware of how funding works in these things. And I was like, but it won't make, have, make enough money on its own. So I want to run a private plastic surgery clinic, which will use its profit to fund it. And that was basically what wow. I said at 12, 13 years old at school, because they take people off the high street at our schools because to, to, to find people to go with the bank. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that kind of was like, it was what I was thinking at the time. I always wanted to be a doctor. Um, and, but that was the plan at that point because I loved, after I was ill, I was like, I was the same weight when I was 13 as when I was 18. And when I was 18, I was running the 100 meters in like just under 11 seconds. So you can imagine how big I was at the age of 13, right? <laughs> um, and, and so I, I, I was uh, uh, from being a very popular child before I got ill because of all the steroids and the treatment and all that kind of stuff. I came out and, you know, children are mean. They're stupid. I didn't have a nice time for my first four years at that school. And then my last year we found out something was wrong with me and I lost all my weight instantly and became a captain of a sport. Mm. Uh, and suddenly was super popular and became very cynical about humans. <laughs> but anyway, um, <laughs> but um, that, that was why I did neuroscience. I wanted to help people. Uh, my grandmother also had Parkinson's, which became a, um, a more of a driving strength in why I was interested in it. So I already wanted to do it. And then obviously her symptoms became worse as she aged. And so it was even more exposed to me and I cared about it even more. Um, but then I decided in my final year, I didn't want to be a doctor. And the reason why I didn't want to be a doctor is because I learned something important about myself, um, which was I'm not intrinsically motivated to help people. And I also don't think many people are. I think it's pretty rare. Um, there are, there are some very, very rare special people and I don't even know whether it's real or not. It's, it's a hard concept for me to truly acknowledge. And this is like my honest opinion on it is, is that I, I don't really believe in true selflessness. I think that even if you're being selfless, you're doing it because it makes you feel good. And like the difference between good people and bad people are basically, or like people who are perceived as good or bad, is basically whether they're like their own intrinsic things which make them feel good result in them doing nice things or nasty things. And basically like I realized after working in A&E in Nottingham Hospital that I only got thanked for working in A&E for no salaries, internships. You have to do that if you want to do a medical postgrad. Um, or a medical degree at all. I got thanked maybe twice uh, for working at night while I was on my degrees. And I realized that I actually didn't feel good enough. I felt good, but I didn't feel good enough by just helping people. I needed them to say, thanks, you helped me a lot. And that's become a really huge part of like all the mentorship that I do for people now and how I like to give back to entrepreneurs, like helping other companies as well, is is that I do it because or even when I train my employees within my company, the reason why I love it so much, my favorite thing is when an employee turns around to me and goes, I was a beginner developer two years ago. My salary average now that I get offered on jobs at every other company is now 150,000 a year within 12 months. And I've done that because of what you've done to me. And for me, that's what makes me happy. Like, and it's not like a man, I'm awesome. It's like, I'm happy that that person is grateful that I gave them that opportunity. And therefore, I know that that person's a good person, right? Um, so I, I realized that, and I realized medicine, at least in non-private healthcare, it, in the US, it's a little bit different. Um, but at least in the NHS, I knew I wouldn't get what I wanted. So if I became a doctor, I'd either become a really bitter, horrible human being who resented other people for the fact that they weren't grateful anymore. Because I think doctors are treated like transactional things these days far too often um or i would um lose my license because i break some rules basically like confidentiality when you have a couple right 
and one person's done something and you can't tell the other one if they're not married if they are married you can sometimes it's just like just not that kind of guy i'm a transparent guy can't deal with that i ain't dealing with it it's it, it, I, I feel bad for the nhs because it's a it's a it's a resourcing thing you have to lower the level of um, emotional intelligence of the average doctor so that you can recruit doctors and then lower the stresses of a job by creating like you're not allowed to talk about this you're not allowed to do this whereas the ideal scenario is, is every doctor becomes mentally equipped to be able to deal with very difficult emotional situations but the problem is is that then you can't there are not enough people who can be doctors anymore or want to be or can be um, and therefore you have to lower the level of service um, and you have to just create rules and that's bad because it means that the people like me who really would have loved to be that kind of doctor, who really wanted to like care about every single individual person, you're not allowed. And it basically makes that job, to be entirely honest, crap. Like I, I, I admire everyone, every single doctor in the world, because I, I could not do that job. So yeah. So interesting. I think I think what I find most fascinating about you and your story and and everything we're talking about here is is how much you've grown to know yourself. You know, I think so many of us, especially, you know, us millennials out there, our peers out there listening, we're still on that journey to figure out who we are, what we love the most, what we want to do with ourselves and how we want to kind of serve ourselves in some way, as you said, self-service and then in turn serve the world. You know, what can we do, in your opinion, what can we do to get to know ourselves better? Um, I said, okay, so if, uh, at least for me, um, first off, you never know yourself. Mm-hmm. And pe- people say, oh, I know you or I understand this person. And like, I think it's incredibly arrogant. I think you can, you can, you can assign a, a, a likelihood that somebody will react in a particular way based on what you know about them, how they dress. But um, the truth is, is that you don't really know. <laughs> and at the end of the day, it's a sum of sort of, you're more likely to be able to predict what somebody will do based on cultural influences and, and external factors. Like, oh, they need to pay for their bills. So you know they're not going to quit, right? But you don't really know intrinsically how that person feels. You just know what they're going to do. So you might be like, oh, I understand this person because I know what they're going to do. But you don't really know why they're doing it or how they feel about it. And it's very rare. Even if somebody talks to you about those problems, everyone has a filter. Everyone has a face. It's very, very rare to find somebody. um, And this is when you have those friendships, which people say, like, this just goes through me through thick and thin. And a lot of people don't have those. That's meaningful relationships. Um, And if you've got that, you're very lucky. And if you don't have that, you know, just keep looking. You'll find 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 that kind of a, a friendship or relationship someday. And um, it, you don't really know. And the thing is, you don't even really know yourself. And the reason why you don't know yourself is because it's not a fixed thing. We're some of our experiences, right? And the thing is, you're not even a sum of the experiences which you have. So, and and, and this is very obvious when you talk about it. It's like two people get shouted at in the street, right? One person has had a sum of their experiences where their parents always shouted, they didn't even notice it, they don't get scared, they don't care, well, they're just like. The other person has like led a much more sheltered life, has very protective parents, and they get shouted out in the street and they're traumatized. It's the same input. Um, and those people um, have perceived it very differently. It's about the abs- absorption of the stimulus, like of the information which comes towards you and how you perceive that circumstance. It's the same with when people feel like they're being harassed. One person might be like, that, I didn't harass them. This is just like, just giving them a hard time. And these are like, obviously sensitive issues. And then the other person's like, oh, but I think that's completely unacceptable because 
of all their previous experiences, but also the current experiences and all their new experiences and their own opportunities which they can gain from playing that relationship. Life is a whole bunch of strings pulling in lots of different directions. And those strings are based on how they, you perceive them. And so when people go like, do I understand myself? It's like, well, you can never truly understand yourself because you're a constant changing element. And so it's not about who am I? It's about what I want to become. And it's about what do I need to change in order to get there? And what are the things which make me feel the way I feel? And how can I influence those to change them? And, um, and, and it's, it's also important to, to, to be, it's, 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 a, it's a difficult thing. A lot of people talk about meditation as a good way to do that. I personally think meditation is a load of crap. I think thinking about things on your own and, and just going through your thoughts is great because they're essentially the same thing. It's just one of them has a whole load of breathing for people who need it to calm down and get into that zone, right? Like whatever, whatever anyone wants to do, just you, you do you. But I think that intrinsically thinking about truly why is it I feel the way I feel about something and that's and a lot of people go like oh because it's mean it's like well no <laughs> the reason why is it mean like it's you you haven't thought like oh why is the fact that somebody insulted me important it's, it's there's lots of psychology around this and bullying bullying as well so for example it's um about how to deal with bullies and the idea is is that if you're the person being bullied um and you kind of need to, the best way to deal with a bully is not to give them a reaction. But you have to remember, you're actually making the bully feel like crap when you do that. It's mean. Because the bully only bullies you because of a social and cultural norm which has been fulfilled because they're bigger or they're stronger or other people are like looking to them to feel superior, right? And then there's all of the normal human related elements to that. Like, you know, you want to show authority or all that crap which like culturally now people look at as negative stuff but we also have to acknowledge is still a part of us and often people go like oh it doesn't matter it's like it does it's still a part of society it's still a part of being human you don't want everyone to just be like a machine like these these are the emotions and ways that humans interact and so when 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 you think about like oh that guy said something so mean to me if you look at it and go well to be honest if he wasn't out of school and we weren't amongst a load of people and we weren't seven years old he wouldn't have said that because there's no reason for him to say it. Do you see what I mean? Every, there's a reason for the, everyone does think, everything happens for a reason, whether it's an important reason to you or not is inconsequential. There was a reason why it happened. So when you think about anything, it should be, just, just really try to work out like the ultimate truth of things. Um, and uh, I think that's something which I always, I, even with founders when they're deciding their business, it's like, well, why is your product good? And at the end of the day, like you've got lots of things like YC, for example, talks about like make something people want. Um, but I actually think the true element of that is not make something people are going to use, which is what most people think of when they think what well, make people want and then solving a bigger problem. What I actually think of is like you have to identify the actual problem, you know, <laughs> and, 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 and the actual problem with bullying is not the fact that children don't follow rules in schools. The actual problem with bullying is, is that we have a, an existing um, like cultural and uh, genetic and societal way of existing, which does not match with what our current like cultural norms are. Mm. And therefore you get this dichotomy between like large child bully small child in a world where it's unacceptable for that to happen, but children are too young to understand that and haven't absorbed that cultural norm yet. Do you see what I mean? Mm. And, and, and if, if you as an individual, when you're thinking about like how you grow, if you start to look at the world like that, you will um, 
I personally, I don't know whether other people will. I, I found a, initially, a place of sadness because it makes the world seem fickle, simple, um, sad. But in time, it's a type of calmness and understanding and it gives you the power to help people a lot more because you can truly or try to truly understand their influences in a, in a far more effective way. Um, and um, if I was going to say, how do you learn to grow personally? Don't worry, you, you're never going to fully understand yourself. Just think about where you want to go. Uh, think about what things you need to change in your life in order to move in that direction. And when things are good and when things are bad, try to truly understand like what it was that actually made it feel good or bad. Like, why is it that you thought that was a good thing? Why is it when your friend gives you a gift that you really want it? Why do you actually feel good? Is it because you wanted that gift so you could do something? Is it because you wanted that gift because you're, um, you know, uh, you want physical things? Like, what's the word? I've forgotten it. But anyway, mm. materialistic. Mm. Got it. And, and it's okay to be materialistic. This is the thing. Like, mm. it's an intrinsic human thing. And it's, you have to accept that fact. It's like, I like nice things. I like nice clothes. Like, I'm, I'm sad that I'm overweight these days because I can't buy or wear any of my nice clothes, you know? Meanwhile, I've lost, and therefore I completely changed my diet recently and I've lost eight kg in three weeks. Um, but it's, I'm also doing a sort of neuroscience experiment on myself at the same time to work out whether I can find a more efficient way for people to lose weight really fast. But anyway, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> it's how it, but it's because I know how to intrinsically motivate myself. Wow. I, I don't care as much about my health as I care about finding a way to help people lose weight. And therefore what I do is, is like, well, I'm not allowed to run experiments on other people, so I can probably do that to me. <laughs> and so I do it, you know? And, and, and I'm way more likely to stick with it now because I've got some really interesting data and I can continue doing it and I wanna see how far it can go um, uh, than I would do just by being like, I wanna lose weight and fit into my clothes because I want, but it started with me accepting the fact that I wanted to wear my clothes again from when I was younger, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and so it's okay to not be perfect. It's okay mm -hmm. to be intrinsically motivated. And, and going back to the gift thing, maybe it's because actually the reason you're happy is because you know that person thought about you in a way and it made you care about that friendship more. And you know, you're like, hey, they spent time thinking about it. And it's okay to be all of those things. You can be any of those. It's totally fine. Mm. It's just, you wanna work out why it was. Cause then you can, and, and then you might not like what you have. And that's okay too. You don't have to freak out. You can be like, oh my God, I'm so materialistic. Oh, like, <laughs> I'm not allowed to be materialistic because apparently that's bad. Like you can go, well, why am I materialistic? And then you can look at why that might be. And maybe it's because you don't have enough meaning, uh, meaningful relationships in your life. Maybe it's because you don't think about things when you give to other people in that way. And it helps you make the changes which pushes you in the direction you want to go. So there you go, something like that maybe. I love it. I love it. You are comical. It's so cool. I, I, I love this conversation. Comical. Jeremy. I don't know if it's a comical topic, but okay. <laughs> it's the way that you are, the way that you relate. It's, it's amazing. I want to talk a bit more about how you got into business. Okay. So, you know, we look, we talked about your, you know, you've got your psychology background, your neuroscience, your, your gaming, your passion for gaming. Where did business come into play? You know, you, you were a gamer. Like, where did that where did that desire to go into business come from? It didn't. <laughs> uh, it was forced on me by the, the need for money. <laughs> um, I love solving problems, yeah. right? 
I love, uh, I taught myself to program with that Minecraft community by building tools to keep the children on my server safe mm. or helping uh, ADHD children, autistic children um, who are on medication have commands which they could put into the game or moderators could put into the game to put them in like their own space so they could calm down and stuff like that. And that was how I learned to program. It was like, I want to solve this problem, therefore I'm going to learn my program so I can solve that problem because no one else is going to make this for me because it's such a niche thing, but I'm going to make it. So I made it and that's how I learned. That's how I got started and that's kind of, I guess, I could argue that there are many, many developers in the world who can thank Minecraft for the start of their programming careers. Um, even though it was learning Java, which is a little bit unfortunate. So a lot of them probably ended up in finance. But anyway. <laughs> Damn. Damn. All that talent. <laughs> and I don't mean the cool new finance of fintech stuff. I mean like old school, like I'm going to make a CRM. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I feel cool. <laughs> anyway. Sorry, people who are making CRMs. I'm sure there are some very cool CRMs. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, uh, it was, um, so I, 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 after university, I actually struggled to find a job. Two years, couldn't get a job. Parents kind of were like, go and work in a bank, go and work in a law firm, go back to med school. Um, and I was doing this Minecraft community, which peaked in users. And my, my mom hates computers, and I understand why. It's both because it reminds her of when I was ill, and it also is because she doesn't understand it. She understands it a lot more now. Um, and my dad is a... My mom's the strong one in the family. My dad does a lot of amazing things, but he would do anything for my mom. So if my mom's unhappy about something, it doesn't really matter what my dad thinks. <laughs> and um, so he, they put so much sort of emotional pressure on me. I moved out, couch surfed for a bit, lived with people um, around the place. Like, again, I'm privileged. I had great friends, so I wasn't like in a really difficult situation. It wasn't nice. And I got my first job through Twitter. Uh, fixing computers at a company called Language Lab, which was a second life thing. Second life is a whole nother story. But anyway, it was a second life thing, which taught people, they employed people to live in an English virtual world. Um, so I was interested in this as a concept from a psychological point of view. Um, and then people like Rosetta Stone, it's like live the world you want to learn the language of, except you actually lived the world in second life. And this was very progressive at the time, based on the fact that most people didn't even have broadband back then. Um, and uh, you would basically live in an English city and you'd have lessons in a school. You would go and buy, go shopping at real shops and like buy clothes and like put them on your virtual character. And we built virtual airports to train international Air France, for example, or Donata to do to pass IELTS examinations for air, uh, for, for, for pilots. So they have to pass the exam, except the way they pass the exam is they would actually fly a plane and talk to an air traffic controller in English. who was a teacher and do all of that and they did stuff with Tengu Chevron Oil was my biggest ever like contract anyway but I got a job as a I, fi I, I built computers like literally and I'd never done this before in my life I was just like I need money <laughs> I really need money and um, I and it, it, it was I was excited I didn't care what the job was no one would interview me for a technical job even because neuroscience wasn't cool then Hey, now I walk into whatever technical job I wanted, but like no one would, no one would take me seriously. I, I applied to JWT, which is a big advertising firm. I probably shouldn't have said their name, but I did. Um, oh well. <laughs> Whoops, sorry. <laughs> Don't mean to burn a bridge, but um, I didn't even get an interview. And in my job application, I filled out the normal application, and on the back, I wrote a early version of what became Facebook Open Graph several years later, which was a system to socially understand individuals through their social network, so you could target advertising to them, which is what. 
what Facebook audiences are. And I didn't get an interview. And I didn't get an interview because of issues with recruitment software, probably. And why do you think I ended up thinking that Head Start was a really cool project to start working with Nicholas on? Anyway, that's that. That's why that came back and why that re-inspired me to get back on the uh, entrepreneurial bandwagon after I was burnt out. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, I, I, I took this job. I was super happy. I got it through somebody. In, I got it through a huge YouTuber um, who was a, who played on my Minecraft servers, which I ran, and because they were the best, so all the YouTubers used to play on. All the celebrities played on my servers, and so um, and he was like, "Hey, I know some people who need some computers fixing. It's like four hundred quid for the day. One day, do you want to do it? <laughs> and <laughs> do you, do do you want to do it? And um, yeah, and." Uh, I basically was just like, uh, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll do it. So I went and did this, and I eventually got offered a job there, and I like, climbed up, and I became head of IT within a year or so um, with no qualifications. And then, funnily enough, I just never asked for a qualification ever again. Like, <laughs> gotta love recruitment, don't you? Gotta it's not about that. what you can do. It's about what you got on your piece of paper. But anyway, <laughs> we've got to change that. And it's changing slowly. It's hard for companies, too. Yeah. Oh. Um, so, yeah, that, that was how I got into the working world. Um, and then started a games company with the chairman of that board there was a whole bunch of stuff in the middle there but i'm not going to talk about that um um and um yeah he was like well I'll fund your games company made a games company um hired my first full team trained them all out of goldsmith's uni none of them had used the engine that we were using got a huge amount of press uh we were building a really ambitious sandbox game i wanted to build it was recall it was called minecraft for graduates so it's like it was minecraft but with like real physics and pulleys and like electronics and stuff mm. like that mm. i was loving it It was like it's my dream game mm. right didn't work out because of financial things which i was inexperienced in business as with everything as my parents always say jeremy you always learn things the really hard way why don't you just you know learn about it beforehand instead of you know running into a wall 50 times to try and see if you can solve the problem it's like, that's how I do it <laughs> I won't forget it I won't forget the mistakes I made <laughs> really hurt <laughs> but um, anyway um, went through that exited that sold that to Jagex Game Studios which is one of the biggest private if not the biggest private game studio in the UK no in England because of Rockstar Games now maybe mm. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, um, and uh, so I uh, took that. Uh, I, I, I did that. After, after that, I was super burnt out. Um, didn't want to work with anyone. Didn't. I had some trust issues mm. uh, because of some of the things which happened with that and board level stuff. Um, and uh, had great support from my girlfriend at the time, um, who is vet. And all I really did was <laughs> went a bit crazy and was like automating my house. And I had like, plugs off the walls with the wiring coming out. My landlord hated me. <laughs> and and I, I went a bit crazy, right? And I was kind of, I was doing all the IoT stuff before IoT was like a thing. I was like, oh, I, I was got my old original Xbox so that I could say good morning to it instead of Xbox on. I could say good morning and it would turn on and I had my own voice recognition algorithm. And I also then hooked up, like I rewired like most of the appliances in my house so I could like turn my toaster on or I could turn the oven off and on and I could do all of that kind of thing and I could, control my TV in a way where it wasn't like turn on, it used to be like go to channel one, right? Is mm -hmm. like how it would work at the time. I changed it to see, to be sort of more semantic. And so we go like, what, what do you feel like? And I could be like, uh, what's going on in like politics? And it would find out a channel which had politics and then pick it. Um, so I was, I was insane. Like, let's, <laughs> let's be frank. And this is not a normal environment. I don't recommend this to anyone. I was not in a good place. <laughs> I was happy when I was solving problems, but I wasn't um, applying them to anything. Mm. And one day, 
all credit to her. She was just like, Jeremy, you're going a little crazy. Uh, like, love you to bits, but um, you kind of, you, you, should, you should start another company. You should find a co-founder. And I was like, I don't trust people. I don't want a co-founder. Like, they'll, they'll, they'll do something bad to me. Or like, they won't have my values. Or, and it's hard. And um, so I went on to uh, basically... Eventually, she was just like, do it. Put out a thing on London Startups Group being like, hey, I'm a technical founder, which is obviously a lot rarer. And I was like, got a good track record. On paper, it looks like I've exited businesses. I've been heads of IT. No, no technical qualification. Neuroscience was becoming cool. So, you know, great, use that. <laughs> um, and um, I, I swear I got like 300 emails a day for about a week. And then it, 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 it then 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. I did a whole bunch of consulting between all of this, by the way, and actually made a lot and spent a lot of money because I was an idiot. But anyway, <laughs> but um, and um then, uh, yeah, that, and, and then ugh, this, I think he was 22 at the time. 22-year-old kid who just on his year, he was a kid. <laughs> I can't really talk about him like that now. Um, he, uh, he got in touch with me, like, pinged the little message, like, on another thread I was talking to with another company in this group, right? He was like, hey, can I give you a call? I was like, yeah, that's why I'm here. I was like, <laughs> just like, give me a phone call. And he rang me and he went, hey, um, hey, uh, I'm, I, I've been on a year abroad in, in China. So he was in Beijing, uh, he's at Oxford University at Wadham College. He's now dropped out, as all good founders do. Um, and um, Oxford refused to rusticate him a second year in a row, so it's their choice, right? Um, and um, he, he said, I want to, and this is, this is an interesting part of like selfishness, right? He was like, I want to make a way to apply for multiple grad schemes with one job application. And I was like, I couldn't get a job after uni because it was annoying. And I went through the pain of all these job applications, which you also don't hear back for like six months. Like, what am I supposed to do for those six months while I'm waiting to hear it, right? And I was like, okay, go on. <laughs> and he was, uh, meanwhile, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, it's cause he doesn't want to have to do all the job applications. <laughs> a great sign of a founder, <laughs> like a real pain point here. And um, I was like, very naively went, uh, both of us were very naive about the recruitment industry at this point. We were like, would, would you know if they got hired? And he went, yeah. And uh, well, I don't see why not. And I was like, I guess so. It makes sense. Like you would know. Um, and I was like, well, do you know what machine learning is? And he went, no. <laughs> and I was like, good. That's what Chinese studies teaches you. <laughs> and that was what I was thinking. But, you know, um, and um, he's actually very accomplished. He had already started a, a tutor, tutor business and stuff like that. Like very impressive for his age. Um, and he, and he was, we were like, yeah. And I was like, well, what if I told you that if we, if we knew that we would be able to tell people how likely they would be to get a job while they were filling in their application and we could be a career companion. We could actually tell people what things they needed to do in order to increase their percentage chances in a quantifiable way. Like if you do this, you will have a 16% more chance of getting that job. Right. And, um, yeah, that, 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 that's. And, and he was like, yeah, we, we ended up chatting for like three to four hours. Mm -hmm. One point his dad walked into his room and was like, Nicholas, what are you doing? Like, I'm on the phone. <laughs> like, <laughs> we're talking business. <laughs> like, you know, like that kind of thing, <laughs> uh, which was really funny. <laughs> and I, I was like, I think it was like 2 a.m. by the time we finished chatting. And um, just kicked off from there. He made a stupid offer on equity, which I said, told him he's done. <laughs> he came back with a more realistic offer a month mm -hmm. later. Mm -hmm. And... Um, yeah, we built a career companion and uh, we were growing at 1,500 users organically a month. 
at the beginning and then we made the re- we didn't get into Y Combinator with what we were currently doing, even though we were growing at the rate of companies which were raising Series A's, which were which were targeting students. Um, and Y Combinator was so right, we were not scalable. We under the reason we were growing so well was because we knew how the UK university system worked. We understood culturally exactly how to get students to sign up here. You want to go take that to another country? Mm. It ain't happening. Mm. And um, one day Nicholas came back and he was just like. He, he kind of, he said he had thought about it in the shower, but he just probably thought about it at some point, but you know, it's cliche, right? Thought about it in the shower. <laughs> and um, he said, well, you know how we discussed this before, like why we couldn't actually just become the application form for companies like an ATS, like a Taleo, which is Oracle, by the way, which is, you know, one of the biggest companies in the world. And uh, he's like, if we became the application form, if they're already a Head Start user, then they could just press one button to apply. And if they weren't, they'd have to sign up to Head Start and then do the whole thing. And then if they got rejected, they could use that one click at any other company that was on our pla- using our platform. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, it's okay to have a really long application process because then you can use it across all these businesses. And at the same time, because you only have one application, you have to be you. You can't be what you, th- what, you can't be the thing that you think, it's not even the thing the company wants, it's the thing you think the company wants you to be, right? And then everyone looks the same, which is hard for companies, which is stuff we learned about later. And uh, I was like, well, I can build it. <laughs> and, um, and we pivoted. Um, and we lost all of our initial clients, which were like L'Oreal, Vodafone, BP, because we were in a, the wrong budget. Enterprise software is very interesting when it comes to how you get money. Like the, uh, we were in like sourcing budget, which wasn't large enough. And um, we, uh, we, we kind of just, uh, we, we, because we were in the sourcing budget, we, um, we, they couldn't actually pay for what our software would be worth mm-hmm. uh, in that budget. So we had the wrong stakeholders, we had the wrong things, we had all the wrong kind of uh, aspects of making our business succeed. Mm-hmm. And so we had to um, change that. Uh, and, and we lost a lot of our clients because we had to find new stakeholders. We had to win new people over. And it's also a lot harder to get somebody to pay a six-figure number rather than like somewhere between 20K to 50K uh, a year, <laughs> right? Like so, and you're not a marketing thing. It's not about sourcing specific sub-demographics of candidates, which is why they were using us. It's about like, no, this is actually operationally how your business works now. Very, very different procurement process. It takes, takes a long time. <laughs> it takes a long time. But once you're in, you're in, which is why enterprise software is exciting. Um, and uh, we pivoted. We reapplied to YC. Most companies with YC get on, on their second application because can, they can see the growth rate. So if you get, if you get rejected from YC, uh, try again. <laughs> also, they have YC Startup School. Go and do it. If you've never founded a business before, it's basically free advice and networking. So do it. You can just go and apply for it whenever you want. <laughs> um, and I recommend it. Right now, it, there is not a better alternative. One day there might be if I get my dream. But like right now, it, it is definitely the best place to go if you want to know how to make scalable businesses. And that's scalable. It's not, well, not small businesses, not I want a large, large salary and to go, this is like growth. That's how they define a startup. You have to grow fast. Five years and you're like a billion dollar company. And... Um, yeah, like we pivoted. Uh, it was really painful. We had to work so hard. I'm so proud of our team. Um, I worked hard. I basically, from a health point of view, I'm pretty sure I almost killed myself. <laughs> um, I gained uh, 20 kg like over that period of time. No sleep, no nothing. Nick 
I just still don't know how he networks the way he networks. He's an absolute beast. Um, and he personally, like he's so much younger than me. He grew so much personally over that mm-hmm. period of time. It was outstanding. Uh, very lucky to have had him as a, as a co-founder. And um, yeah, and, and we got in and we went through YC and we went from a, uh, we, we were getting term sheets. Also, this is the valuation difference between Europe and Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. It's like coming into play. We were offered a term sheet. We were valued at 3 million in the first quarter of um, 2017, which I now know was way too low for what we were. We were then valued, we were then made an offer of 6 million at the, just before we went into YC. And then our valuation while we were at YC was 18 million in three months. And, you know, that's a testament of a few things. That's a testament of the risk appetite of investors in Europe. It's a, it's, but it's also a, a representation of personal growth from Nicholas and myself and um, also the, thing, the things that the value that YC gave us. So it's, it's the network, but it's also they teach you a lot about how the world really kind of works in those circles. And, and it's not all as bad as people say. A lot of people are like, oh, this is so dirty. And like the networking stuff, I hate it. Like I'm not a network kind of guy. I'm like, I'm a meritocratic kind of guy. Like if that person's great, then they get to win. I know that's not always how it works. Let's be real. But you know, you got, you got to play the game somehow, but it's not all bad. It's, it's a lot of it's actually, there are a lot of amazing people. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that, that was, that was that. So I guess all the way back, like, why did you get into business? I, I got into business because I think it's the best way to make the biggest impact. You don't, there's no choice. You see so many, you see so many decision-making factors going into whether something's a good idea. I mean, the environment is something which drives me insane because the biggest solutions to the environment issues are not um, are not the ones which people talk about the most. Like the massive hoo-ha in the UK. I don't know whether you have an history about paper straws, right? Paper straws suck. <laughs> like, let's be frank, they suck. Like, they're great because they help the environment. We can talk about all the social stuff. They're great socially. They suck as a thing because you drink anything which is like slightly thicker than water and you can't like suck. It like closes at the end and then it's like, I don't have a milkshake anymore. Now I've just got milk. (laughs) It's just melted. Thanks, paper straw, (laughs) you know. Um, But but if you look at the numbers, this is again, like look at the underlying truth. If you look at the numbers of what are contributing to the amount of plastic in the ocean, plastic straws aren't even on the list. It's not, it's like a point naught, 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 one contribution to net plastic. Do you know what's 38%? Fishing nets. Wow, couldn't you just put all of the resources that you've put into like telling people about paper straws and lobbying companies and basically creating an inefficient solution into making new material which is better than plastic and then force fishing companies to use it? The, the biggest impact you could have in one year. Like, wouldn't that be great? You know, so I, I, I think that, um, I certainly have, a, I'm very opinionated on that stuff. So, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but <laughs> it, it, it's what I've seen from looking at all of the, 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 the reports of like what makes up the, whatever that thing's called, like the way all the plastic like is in the middle of the ocean. Like they have, there's a report which has a breakdown of what all the different types of plastics are inside of that. And like fishing nets is like a big chunk. <laughs> but anyway, sorry, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. I, I'm, I'm taking it all in. I love it. I love it. Look, Jeremy, we've, I could speak to you forever. We could keep on going. I'm just conscious of time. I want to take a moment to acknowledge you for the phenomenal work you've done and that you're doing for, you know, pursuing what it is that you actually care about, for 
going through all the hard stages to get to where you wanted to go, I think you really show us that, you know, if we're persistent, if we're crazy enough, we can actually do it. Being a bit crazy helps. <laughs> Love that. So yeah. our final question is how we finish all of our interviews here at The Peers Project. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? Um the value to the individual who does the pursuing uh, is intrinsic intrinsic happiness and uh, self-value I think is a really important thing so people the whole idea of what is happiness is uh, intrinsic self-worth but the thing which makes me particularly most happiest is um, we discussed earlier like if, if I can give opportunity to somebody and I can see them be better than they would have been without me then I feel like I've done what makes me happiest Jeremy, ladies and gentlemen, we've had an absolute blast. Thank you so much. Thank, but, thank you. Of course. Where can people learn more about you and Headspace? Uh, Headstart. Headstart. Although Headspace, Headspace. Headspace, if you're going to do your meditation, a bit of Headspace, I'm not going to lie. You search Links for Head right on any app store. It's always Headspace above ours when we were a native app. I get it. I get it. Oh, it happened. Headstart AI. <laughs> yeah, well, um, like I, 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 my, my online handle is Mentium, M-E-N-T-I-O-U-M. It's a play on understanding others, ancient Greek. Um, and it's also my gamer handle. You can have me on gaming platforms if you want, I guess. <laughs> um, but um, Instagram, Twitter, all of those kind of things. I use them for different stuff. Take a peek. Hit me up. Love if you it. want help with stuff, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at replying. Go for it. Perfect. We'll link them up in the show notes. Jeremy, once again, thank you so much. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played and leave us a review. We produce with passion and it doesn't stop here to see what else we're up to visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on instagram at thepeersproject we'll have fresh real talk for you next week peers until then if you need inspiration look amongst your peers